Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. We would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at 9.15 or 10.45 a.m. at our new location at 5103 Pegasus Court. To learn more about what Sunday mornings at Collective look like, please head to mycollective.church and click on what to expect. There are going to be a lot of great things at Collective this summer as Maryland opens up, so stay tuned for upcoming events and announcements as we continue to try to make an impact in our city. Now here's Sunday's message. Hey, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, yeah. Hey, so uh, like DJ was saying, you could, if it's your first time, second time, you could find him out there. Someone needs to find him and get him a new t-shirt, right? You know, like what in the world are you wearing, man? Come on. Uh, Hey, my name is Curtis, and uh, it is, seriously, it's an honor to get to be here with you guys today. Uh, My family and I, we live in Ohio currently, originally from Baltimore, Maryland. I moved out there a couple years ago to help start a church out in in Cleveland. And uh, I know that you guys talk about honor. I know Michael talks a lot about honor, and it's definitely an honor uh, to get to be here to share with you what is really one of my favorite stories uh, in the Bible. But before I I really jump into that, I I just, I want to ask you, would you, I know you don't know me for any, but would you do me a favor? And before you leave this morning, uh, would you find Michael and his team and just tell them thank you uh, for the way that they uh, are loving Frederick, for the way that they are loving you. You're part of a great church. And so much of that is having a leader and a team who loves and cares for you. And I know I can tell you uh, from behind the scenes on phone calls and in prayer time, Michael loves God dearly. And that overpours uh, out to you guys. And And uh, I just would love for you guys to encourage him and tell him uh, thank you. Uh, But let's continue on in our series for today. Uh, The story that we're we're looking at uh, today out of the Bible, uh, it has a moment in the story that I feel like is illustrated really well uh, by one of my kids. And so real quick, I want to introduce them. This is my family. My wife and I, we have four kids. And uh, whenever I give somebody that piece of information, we have three girls and one boy, I always, uh, they always want me to answer a couple questions for them. And so I wanted to take that, uh, take an opportunity to do that right now. Uh, yes, my wife and I have four kids. Uh, they were all on purpose. We do know how that happens. No, we were not trying for a boy. And finally, yes, our hands are really full. Uh, <laughs> It's tough, uh, but I, I do love it. Parenting is teaching me so much about what God still wants to like do in me. Uh, but a question that also, also often gets asked is, what transition is the most difficult? Going from zero kids to one kid, one kid to two kids, two to three, or three to four. What is the most difficult? And my answer to that question has become, it's just all difficult. It's all really tough. Uh, But uh, a couple years ago, we had something happen when we switched uh, from having two kids to three kids. It's the, we note that time in our life when we transitioned from man to cover defense, right? And shortly after, about two months after our third uh, daughter was born, uh, we're lucky enough that uh, grandma and grandpa live across the street from where we live in Ohio. And I had gotten home from work and I went over to pick up the oldest two from grandma and grandpa house. Well, our oldest, Hadley, she was working in the garden with grandma and she was covered head to toe in mud. 
And our middle daughter, KJ, she had just returned from a Dunkin' Donuts trip with Grandpa to get some coffee, and Grandpa bought her a chocolate-iced sprinkled donut. But it was about 5 o'clock, and right before dinner, and probably much like your house, the rule is like, hey, no sweets before dinner. You need to eat a good dinner. KJ was about two years old, a year and a half or so. And uh, so I, I grabbed the two of them. I, I came back home. What I did not know was that my wife had just gotten our two-month-old to eat and fall asleep in her arms on the couch in the living room. And when you've got a newborn, right, who's struggling to eat and struggling to sleep, you let that baby sleep. Well, I come like bursting into the house. Hey, Hadley's a mess. I got to go wash her off outside. Here's KJ. And I set the donut on the island and I go back out into the garage. KJ, for the very first time, she realized they're in zone defense. I'm the open man. So she decides, I'm going to take advantage of this. She grabs the donut in the bag, and she toddles over to our Barheart kitchen table, and she begins to climb up into the chair, her chair. And my wife begins to coach her, hey, KJ, look, you know the rules. No donut before dinner. KJ, don't eat that donut. KJ, you're not supposed to eat that donut as quietly but as forceful as she can, assuming that I'll be right back inside because I just got to wash off Hadley before I come in. Well, KJ, she just continues on her way. She climbs up in into the chair. She buckles herself into her chair, takes the bag with the donut, begins and pulls the donut out of the bag. And at this point in time, my wife switched, you know, defense. Okay, KJ, just one bite. Just one bite before dinner, KJ. You can have one bite. So KJ looks at the donut. She looks back at my wife, looks at the donut, looks back at my wife, and she takes one bite of the donut. Okay, KJ, you've had your bite. That's it. One bite of donut. No more bites, KJ. Still realizing she's the open man. Donut, wife, donut, wife, donut, and a loud and very proud, uh-oh, and takes another bite of the donut. And she continues to demolish the entire top of the donut. And every time before she took a bite, it was preceded with a very loud and very proud, uh-oh. And I come back inside and I come in and I see this. My daughter has completely smashed the entire donut. KJ, what did you do? She offered me some, but I didn't take her up on the offer. Now, here's the deal. That story illustrates, like, you've been there, Right? Right, maybe like as a parent, but, but in your own personal life, and it's probably something different than having a donut before dinner, right, where you, you start venturing into something and it's like, I, I know I shouldn't be doing this, whatever this may be for you, doing something that you probably shouldn't be doing, and, and what do you do as you begin to wander into something you know you shouldn't be doing? What do you begin to do mentally? We begin to sell ourselves, Right? We begin to tell our things like, I'm not hurting anyone, and we, uh-oh, jump in anyway. So she'll never find out. He'll never know. They'll never find out, and we, uh-oh, jump in anyway. Perhaps maybe the most dangerous thing we begin to tell ourselves is, I deserve this. And so we, uh-oh, jump in anyway. And even though you know that this thing, whatever it is, is going to leave you empty, or it's going to hurt you, or it's not going to satisfy the way that you think it should, or worse, maybe it's going to hurt someone you love, we, uh-oh, jump in anyway. 
And so today's Based on a True Story, I think, can help us with these moments. And so our story comes to us from the first part of our Bibles called the Old Testament. And all of this today is pre-Jesus stuff. In fact, today's story happens somewhere around 900 years before Jesus would be born. And our story revolves around a guy who would eventually become known as King David. But today in our story is before he is king. In fact, this is when he is a a, a warrior in in Saul's army. See, David actually steps into the pages of history as a shepherd boy, as far as the public's concerned, a nobody. But David steps into the spotlight when he defeats a beast of a man named Goliath in battle and essentially becomes a legend overnight. This fascinating story. Perhaps you've read it before. If you haven't, you should. And David, he becomes a legend overnight. Well, this guy named Saul is king at the time. And when David defeats Goliath, Saul does the wise thing and decides to bring David in close to uh, to his palace He gives David prominence in the military. He becomes a commander, and he has all kinds of successful victories. Eventually, King Saul has David marry his daughter. So now this no-name shepherd boy, the king, is his father-in-law. He's living in the palace. David becomes this excellent military commander, and he just rises in fame. And Saul realizes, oh no, this guy's a threat to my dynasty. You see, Saul would want his son Jonathan to become king, but Saul realizes David's becoming so popular, the people are going to want him to be king. And so Saul completely turns on David, but he begins to do it through really conniving ways. First thing Saul does is he goes and he has his daughter, David's wife, try to manipulate him. And when that doesn't work to get David, Saul says, all right, well, he's a commander in my army. I know what I'll do. I'll send him out to battles. I know he can't win, and eventually one of my enemies will take care of him. But the problem is, is David is a stud on, as, on the battlefield. And David just keeps winning and winning and rising in fame. So all of this culminates where finally one day Saul loses his cool. And at a family dinner, he tries to kill David. But he fails. And David in that moment flees. And David becomes an outlaw. But because David is such a great warrior, when he becomes an outlaw, he attracts all the other fugitives, all the other, all the other Israelite uh, fugitives in the area who were also great warriors. And David ends up forming this little band of merry men, these elite military fighters. And there's some really cool stories about them too in the Bible. The Bible refers to them as David's mighty men. But they're men without a home. They're a small army without a home. But they rally around David. And David tells them, hey, look, God has said I'm going to be the next king. And David promises them, hey, look, if you stick with me, one of these days God is going to set all this injustice that's been done against us. One of these days God's going to make it right. And if you just stick with me and and you be patient and you wait, God will deliver us eventually. Now, meanwhile, while all this is happening, David and his men are fleeing. Saul is king. He's running the kingdom. But as he is, he's continually sending spies out to look for David because he knows as long as David still lives, he's a threat to his dynasty. And one day, some spies find out that David and his men are in this area called En Gedi. And Saul gathers up his men and brings us to our story today, and they head out to the En Gedi Mountains. And this is a picture of what it looks like. It's mostly barren. It's mostly desert with a couple oases sprinkled throughout, tons of holes and crevices. Saul hears that David is in this region, 
And he heads out, and this is our story for today. 1 Samuel verse to, uh, chapter 24, verse 2, it says this. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, where it says 3,000 able young men, what this is really being translated as, don't read it, it's just like three people who were able. These were Saul's most able men. These were Saul's most elite warriors. Now, the men that we have listed in the Bible that were part of David's mighty men were about 40 guys. Now, there were, there were several, there were a couple hundred, but 3,000 was way more than what Saul needed in order to take out David and his men. But Saul gathers these 3,000 soldiers and he heads out to the crags of the wild goats. And we don't know today exactly where this was, but the author, the historian, as he was writing this down, he would have known exactly where this was. And Saul and his men, they go up and they start traveling for several days. They set out to find David and his men. And the first part of verse 3 reads like this. He, Saul, came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, once again, I, I have not been there, but uh, what I found in this region and what I've been told and I've found through research is this region is full of mountains and the mountains are full of caves. There are caves everywhere and crevices everywhere that you could hide in. And the text says that a cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. And this is exactly what you think it is. King Saul had to go potty and he couldn't wait to the next rest stop in order to do his business. Now, when you're just a soldier, when you're just a foot soldier in the king's army and you've got to go potty, you just deal with it while this caravan of 3,000 people are traveling. It's actually 3,000 plus. It was 3,000 soldiers. That doesn't include the armor bearers, the people that would cook for them and things like that. So it's this whole caravan. Well, if you're just one of the people in the caravan, you, gotta, like, you just kind of deal with it. You kind of go while you're walking or you run off to the side, do your business, and then you try and catch up. But not when you're the king. When you're the king, everything stops. And you get down off of whatever animal that you're riding. And Saul would go and he'd work his way up to the cave because the king doesn't poop in public. The king does his business in private. So the whole caravan stops and they'd wait as Saul would make his way up the hill to find a cave where he could go inside and do his business in private. And if you've heard this story before, this is where the story takes an interesting turn. Because the rest of verse 3 says this, Saul went in to relieve himself and David and his men were in that cave. They were hiding in the back of the cave, the very cave that Saul went in to relieve himself. The one that Saul picks to wander back inside of, to relieve himself in the cool of the cave, David and his Navy SEAL buddies that have just been waiting to take revenge on Saul are hiding and have been hiding in the back of the cave. Because what most likely happened was David knew Saul was coming for him and he got word from his scouts. So David told his men, scatter, we'll hide in the caves, we'll let Saul's men go through, we'll reconvene and then we'll go the other way. But man, have the stars have aligned because they need Saul and here he is. This is a best case scenario for David. 
Just imagine with me. Man, imagine, like if you were there, imagine with me. Saul walks in from the bright desert sun, but you've been hiding in the back of the cave for a while. Your eyes are, have adjusted. You can see clearly. Saul can barely see in front of his face. And he walks in just far enough to where he can't be seen or heard from the outside. And he gets himself in the most vulnerable of positions. He can hardly see. David and his men have got to be thinking, Hallelujah! This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's kill the king, David. It seems so clear. God has delivered his enemy into his hands. In fact, David had already been anointed as king and people had heard the rumors that he's the next guy in line. The only thing standing in David's way is Saul and here he is. In fact, look at what the men say to him as all of this is unfolding. In verse 4, the men said to David, David's men said to him, this is the day the Lord spoke of. When he, told, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Here's your chance, David. Strike while the iron is hot. You're going to become king today. This is what we've been waiting for. Kill the king and let's go home. You deserve this. Let's get what's ours. And we live in a day and age where like optics are everything, right? Imagine, imagine with me for a second the optics on this if we were standing outside of the cave. Everything stops. Saul goes in. A couple moments go by. David emerges holding the head of King Saul. Every person in that caravan would have bowed their knee in that moment with David as the new king. Very quick. No war, very little bloodshed. Can you imagine the thoughts and the emotions, the way his heart was racing as he was hiding in the back of that cave? Could you imagine the things going through David's mind? Imagine the pressure that David felt that afternoon to do something about King Saul. I deserve this. The text, though, tells us that David felt something else as all of this was unfolding. There was a hesitation in David's mind that didn't make any sense in light of the situation that was unfolding. It says, the men said, this is the day that the Lord has made, in verse 4, uh, that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then verse 4 finishes out and says, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe, not his head, but a corner of Saul's robe. As, as, as you read this text and as we, we finish out the story, it's as if all of this as it's unfolding, something keeps pulling at David. I think as he's sneaking up on the back of King Saul, he has that uh-oh moment and he gives some attention to it rather than just flying by this weird tension that he's feeling. And as he gets to Saul, it seems as though this still small voice had grown louder and louder and louder and it just wouldn't go away. 
And by the time David had crept from the back of the cave to the back of Saul's back, his decision had been completely reframed. In fact, verse 5 actually tells us that David was conscience-stricken. It literally says that his conscience bothered him. He let his conscience bother him. And because of that, somehow in the middle of this, with all of that emotion going on, he was able to give attention to this tension that he was feeling. And he realizes in that moment, and the decision is reframed, and it's, wait, 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 wait. I'm about to kill the king. I'm about to become a murderer. And the story takes another turn because David doesn't kill Saul, but instead he cuts off a corner of his robe and he sneaks back to his men. And if you're one of David's men, right, and you've been an outlaw for months wrongly, and you're like, what are you doing? Like, dude, this is your chance. In fact, we actually don't have to wonder. The text tells us that David had to go and explain himself and reprimand his own men. It says in verse 6, he said to his men, David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. That's what he calls Saul. That I should do such a thing against my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Man, David was close. And he was, he, was, he was so close. Somehow, in that moment, he remembered who he is and who he wants to be. And that enabled David to also remember who Saul is. I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Essentially what David's saying there, look, if God can put Saul in place, I'm not going to be the one to take him out of place. See, David knew what he wanted to be defined as. A prophet named Samuel, several chapters earlier in this same book, a guy named Samuel goes to King Saul and actually tells him this. He says, but now, Saul, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has already has sought out a man after his own heart. And appointed him to be ruler of his people. He's talking about David. See, David's identity was rooted in God. That he wanted to be a man after God's own heart. A man who sets his heart on and after things that God wants him to run after. And many, 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 many years later, David is used as an illustration in a sermon about Jesus. And David's reputation is the same. In the book of Acts, a guy's teaching a message about Jesus, and it says this, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, just for a second with me, imagine how different this story would have played out if David killed Saul. In this one moment, the rest of David's story, David almost became the man who killed the very first king of Israel. David almost became the man who killed his own father-in-law. And imagine how that story would have played out later. Could you imagine years, many years later, 
As David has grandkids and they come like running into the palace room. Hey, great granddad. And they set him up on last. Tell, tell us the story about how you snuck up behind great grandpa while he was using the bathroom in the cave and you slit his throat. We love that story, grandpa. Can you tell us again? Nobody wants to tell that story. That's not who he wants to be. David said, I'm a man after God's own heart. So I have a question for you this morning. What story do you want to tell? What story is it that you want to tell with your life? Is it, gonna, is it a story that, that's one of pride and arrogance, and taking what's owed to you? Or, or do you want it to be a story of love and honor and sacrifice? One of the things... One of the things that's been the most helpful for me is I was introduced to a question a couple years ago, and it's really been the only thing for me that's allowed me to kind of create a pause in the moment and, and visualize how this is going to pan out. When I'm in the moment and I start selling myself on a bad idea, on someone I don't really want to be, I had a friend of mine ask me this question one time, what story does this decision tell? What story does this decision tell? As this plays out, as this, this, in this moment, as I'm about to do whatever this may be, does this become part of a story that I love to tell, one of honor, respect, and trust? Or does this become a story that when I come to this part of the story, I just want to jump over because I would attach some shame to it? Does this tell a story like every other story where it's me first, me only, and me always? See, in, in this moment... David's men, they're taken back, and it, it seems as though they're like, okay, look, we get it, David. You don't want blood on your hands. Let us take care of it. And it says in verse 7, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. So close. So let me ask you a question, a couple questions, and then we're going to finish up quickly. First question. Are you close? Are you close? Are you, are you contemplating some decision? You're kind of playing with the lines of what you know you should do and what you can convince yourself is okay to do. Maybe, maybe someone wronged you and you know exactly how you can get them back. You know the perfect way to even the score. You've played it over a hundred times and you win every single time. Maybe you've worked really hard and so you deserve a break or to cheat this one time or on that test or with that friend. Maybe you've been trying hard to make your marriage work, but it's still tough. And you know your spouse would be hurt to know that you're messaging that person or talking to that old friend in that way or a colleague, but it's just a message. It's just a drink. Is there some internal tension going on around a decision and you just blow right by that tension? Are you selling yourself on a decision that is going to follow you around the rest of your life? I want to point out something. Did you notice David, by almost taking revenge that afternoon, David almost became like someone he doesn't even like. If David would have killed Saul that afternoon, he would have become just like King Saul. It's a question. Are you contemplating becoming like someone you don't even like? I'm going to make a suggestion, and 
making this suggestion to myself. It's proved wisdom for me, and, but it's tough to remember. When you stop and you ask yourself that question, what, what story does this decision tell? I know what happens. We start selling ourselves. And when you start selling yourselves, here's my suggestion. Hit pause, stop convincing, and start listening. And I don't really mean start listening to yourself. I don't even really mean start listening to your friends, unless they're good, godly friends. I mean start listening to who God says you are. It will save you from mistakes. And here's what I mean by that. If you're someone in here and you've not placed your faith in and began to follow Jesus with your life and you start thinking, man, this isn't any good for me. I've already given way to the tension I've blown by a long time ago. I've already sold my identity. I'm just a cheater. I'm just a liar. I'm an addict. I'm a sinner. The good news is that God sent Jesus so that we could be forgiven and given a thing called grace. And the best way to describe grace is endless second chances. And I want you to see how God sees you. God sees you as a lost child that he wants to come home. God sees you as loved. God sees you as having a purpose and a plan for your life. God sees you as his masterpiece. God can use the bad in your life to bring about the good. And if you're ready to hear more about finding that identity, man, I want you to mark off on your digital connection card, mark off the baptism box and someone could follow up with you this week. Are you listening to who God says you are? Or are you trying to find that identity in something else? See, if David would have made being king his identity in that moment, he would have sold himself out. And who knows the story, how the story would play out and how we would speak about David today. As you find yourself in those moments where you're choosing what to do, how to respond when someone treats you poorly, what to do when the boss doesn't give you the credit that you deserve, or the friend said, or the friend didn't show up when they said that they would, or you're not getting the attention in the marriage that you think you should, or that online review doesn't tell half the story of when that client walked into your business. Jesus gave us our marching orders when he said, that we are to love others the way that Jesus loved us. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is to root our identity as one that is loved by God. And when we place our identity in God first, it's then that we'll be able to love others the way that Jesus loved us, even our enemies. And I know that that's the story that you want to tell. Let's pray. God, we love you. Um, God, thanks for this story. God, thanks for, for a story of a real guy who was, uh, man, just uh, uh, an elite military warrior choosing to not take revenge. God, to, to, to leave the rest of his story up, up to you, to know I'm not going to step across because I want to be a man after God's own heart. God, would you give us the, the wisdom to see those areas in our lives where we start selling ourselves on a bad idea, where we would sell our, our, ourselves and a part of our story that we wouldn't want to tell. God, would you give us wisdom to see that and, and, and the ability to be able to create some space so in that moment, God, we can, we can hit pause and stop convincing ourselves and start listening to who you say that we are so that we can love the way that you would want us to love. God, we love you and we thank you and we want to honor you with everything that we do and say.
in your son's name we pray. Amen.